Our confessional lesson for this evening is found in the Belgic Confession, and I'll be reading Articles 30 through 32. You can find these articles on page 866 and 867 in your hymnals. We believe that this true church ought to be governed according to the spiritual order that our Lord has taught us in his word. There should be ministers or pastors to preach the word of God and to administer the sacraments. There should also be elders and deacons along with the pastors to make up the council of the church. By this means, true religion is preserved. True doctrine is able to take its course, and evil men are corrected spiritually and held in check, so that also the poor and all the afflicted may be helped and comforted according to their need. By this means, everything will be done well and in good order in the church when such men are elected who are faithful and are chosen according to the rule that Paul gave to Timothy. Article 31, the officers of the church, we believe that ministers of the word of God, elders and deacons ought to be chosen to their offices by a legitimate election of the church with prayer in the name of the Lord and in good order as the word of God teaches. So everyone must be careful not to push himself forward improperly, but he must wait for God's call so that he may be assured of his calling and be certain and sure that he is chosen by the Lord. As for the ministers of the word, they all have the same power and authority, no matter where they may be, since they are all servants of Jesus Christ, the only universal bishop and the only head of the church. Moreover, to keep God's holy order from being violated or despised, we say that everyone ought as much as possible to hold the ministers of the word and elders of the church in special esteem because of the work that they do, and be at peace with them without grumbling, quarreling, or fighting. Article 32, the order and discipline of the church. We also believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the churches to establish and set up a certain order among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, they ought always to guard against deviating from what Christ, our only master, has ordained for us. Therefore, we reject all human innovations and all laws imposed on us in our worship of God, which bind and force our consciences in any way. And so we accept only what is proper to maintain harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. To that end, excommunication with all it involves, according to the word of God, is required I don't know if you've ever heard of this phrase, form follows function. I know if you've studied architecture, you may have. It was most popular uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries among the modernists. It refers to a principle of design according to which shape or structure ought to conform to intended function or purpose. For example, a family home would be designed in accord with the typical activities of family life, no more and no less, with certain certain uh, minimalism in modernist architecture. 
In any case, form follows function. Well, let me suggest to you that in the context of our confessional lesson this evening, form follows function provides a good handle by which we can understand what the Belgic Confession has to teach us concerning church government and the officers of the church in whose charge it is. Let me explain. Last time we studied the marks of the true church in Article 29. There are three marks or criteria by which we can identify the true church. They are as follows. The pure preaching of the gospel, the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them, and church discipline for correcting faults. This is what takes place in the church. These are the essential activities in which the church is engaged. Now, the church needs a form or a design or a structure that facilitates these activities, that makes them possible and ensures that they are done well and in good order. Of course, we refer here to the government of the church. The confession mentions in connection with this subject three offices, uh, first in Article 30 and then again in Article 31. Corresponding to the pure preaching of the gospel and the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ is the office of the minister of the word of God. The minister must devote the best of his time and energy studying the word of God, bringing out treasures old and new for the benefit of those who hear him. He must preach the whole counsel of God, expounding to the fullest extent the truth of God's word. This will include words of comfort and encouragement, as well as words of warning and admonition. Sometimes his message will contain a stinging rebuke. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, according to Proverbs 27.6. At other times, it will contain a heartfelt plea to be reconciled to Christ. Now, the minister is not always popular, but he should already know that going in. He must be prepared to suffer tribulation to whatever degree it may be his lot, because the name of Jesus gives offense. Nevertheless, he should not use this truth to deflect criticism. Ministers can be neglectful of their tasks. They can be harsh in their treatment of their congregation. They may have any number of flaws that spring from a character that must be forged in the fires of suffering, just as that of any other Christian. The minister is by no means exempt. He is not a super-Christian somehow deserving of special treatment. Nevertheless, the office to which he is called is a very important one in the church. For this reason, he must be careful not to push himself forward um, improperly, but he must wait for God's call so that he may be assured of his calling and certain that he, in fact, is chosen by the Lord as Article 
31 states. This applies also to elders and deacons who enter into their offices only by a legitimate election of the church with prayer and in good order as the word of God teaches, as the same article states. But when the minister of the word of God is confident of his calling, then his office should be a joy and a high privilege to him. He will be faithful in opening the scriptures, presiding at baptisms, and breaking the bread at the Lord's table. He will be held in special esteem among the people because of the good work that he does among them. And they will have no reason not to be at peace with him and have no reason to grumble, quarrel, or fight. For through the pure preaching of the gospel and the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, people will be saved and sanctified and God will be glorified and honored. Through these ordinary means of grace, Christ speaks and acts in his church. That it is Christ who speaks and acts in his church is an important point to underline in a doctrine, in a reformed doctrine of church government. Power and authority reside in Christ alone, the only universal bishop, the only head of his church. And you should know that this insistence distinguishes the reformed doctrine of church government from that of Rome, and for that matter, also from that of Canterbury. In the case of the Catholic Church, power is delegated by Christ to the bishop of Rome, the pope, who is Christ's representative on earth, the vicar of Christ, or in the case of the Anglican Church, to the archbishop of Canterbury, which is then ministered through the hierarchy of bishops and priests. In contrast, the ministers of the word and sacrament in the Reformed churches all have the same power and authority wherever they may be because they are all servants, not of the Pope or an archbishop or a delegated authority, but of Jesus Christ. Corresponding to the order and discipline of the church is the offices of elder and deacon who together with the pastor make up the council of the church. Now, the Belgic Confession does not go into detail about the duties of the, uh, the elder, but we do know that the elder's task is to rule, to rule over the congregation. Pastors are also elders, but non-preaching elders have the task of ruling. Now, when I was young, I'm, st- I'm old enough to remember that uh, elders did home visits. Their ostensible purpose was to instruct families in the ways of godliness. They were to correct and encourage people, pointing them to Christ, who is the chief shepherd of the flock. Furthermore, elders rule the minister. Not that they are his bosses, but they are charged to supervise his preaching and his way of life, exercising discernment to determine that these, in fact, are in accord with God's word and will as it is reflected in that word. 
The third office is that of deacon. If Christ speaks through the minister and rules through the elder, he also ministers through the deacon. The diaconate is the office that Christ uses in his church to care for the needs of his people. The truth that Christ provides all things must be understood both by those who administer the help as well as those who receive the help. Just as there is no shame involved in a sinner receiving salvation from Christ, so there should be no embarrassment involved in a needy person receiving material help from the church. I always say this from the pulpit in my church, it's easier to lend a helping hand than to take hold of one. We're too proud. Deacons obviously cannot know who needs help, but they should be sensitive to the needs around them, aware of the potential sources of hardship that exist among the people, and they should respond accordingly. Other members should also approach those as they become aware of needs and assist directly or contact the church council, or the deacons. The distinction has been made by theologians between the esse, or the being of the church, and the bene esse, or the well-being of the church. When the officers of the church are fulfilling their tasks joyfully and competently, then it is likely that we may speak of the well-being of the church. The Belgian Confession does give to us a few of the marks that distinguish a church that is well. First, true religion is preserved. True religion seems to be a phrase that's borrowed from John Calvin, and I think we can understand it to mean piety. Piety is a term that you see frequently in Calvin's work. The pious man, according to Calvin, confesses this, we are God's. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are God's. Let his wisdom and his will therefore rule all our actions. We are God's. Let all the parts of our lives accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. Second, true doctrine is able to take its course. It's obvious that the pure preaching of the gospel is essential to the well-being of the church. Third, rebellious men are corrected spiritually and held in check. Whoever strays from the will of God and rejects sound doctrine must be disciplined. Now, conscientious church discipline belongs to the well-being of the church, just as it is unloving if parents neglect to discipline their children, so it is unloving if church officers look the other way when one of Christ's own is strained from the flock. Again, it's obvious that church discipline can be a very difficult and heavy task for office bearers, usually the elders, but it must be done for the sake of the well-being of the church. And fourth, the poor and afflicted may be helped and comforted according to their need. When the deacons are performing their task well, they play a vital role in contributing to the well-being of the church. 
electing faithful men to the offices according to the rule that Paul gave to Timothy, namely men of good character, able to teach, holding to the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience, helps ensure that these tasks are done well for the sake of the well-being of the church. Finally, it's good for those who govern to establish rules for the harmony and unity of the church. And these may include uh, things like when and where to meet, how office bearers are to be elected, how the finances are to be regulated. And there is freedom here, as we see in Article 32, but it is a freedom with boundaries. And these are defined by what Christ has ordained for us according to the, the confession. Therefore, human innovations and laws, especially those imposed on our worship of God, which bind our consciences, are to be rejected. Simplicity seems to be the guiding principle here. Accept what is useful to the harmony and unity of the church, but keep all in obedience to God, as God has revealed uh, his will to us in his word. Finally, the article anticipates uh, that there may be those in our churches who are contentious, who sow seeds of discord, who disturb the peace of the church. And this may make it necessary for such to be formally disciplined. And if this does not result in repentance and conversion, then such people must ultimately be cut off from the church. The article refers in this regard to excommunication. In summary, Articles 30 to 32 of the Belgic Confession deal with church government, the officers of the church, as well as order and discipline in the church. I've tried to argue that these provide the form, the design, or the structure within which the church can function as the church. So let's be diligent as the church in attending to matters of church government. And let us pray for faithful men to serve the church as officers, as well as for the discernment to recognize them when they are among us. For when they, uh, when they exercise their office well, then the church is well. Our scripture reading for this evening is found in the gospel according to Mark, the first chapter, but instead of beginning at verse 29, I want to begin at verse 21. So Mark 1, verses 21 through 39. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? 
For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. But he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. A week ago, Saturday, I was at a diner in Ionia called Sherry's. And I was there with Steve, our pastoral intern, and his friend Ruth uh, for breakfast. Um, I suppose that we must have appeared deep in thought because soon four people from our church who were also there for breakfast, stopped at our table, paused for a moment, and then remarked, look at them, of the academic degrees represented at the table, there must be at least three or four times more the number of those actually sitting at that table. Now, we all laughed, but I guess I remained deep in thought because it occurred to me that the faith we share the faith for which we are gathered here this evening can be seen as an idea. And this is easy enough to do, especially in Presbyterian circles. People, as you know, have to spend several years in formal academic study to qualify to serve as pastors, ministers of word and sacrament in Presbyterian churches. Indeed, the bar is set high even for ruling elders. They are expected to have a command not only of the scriptures, but also of the Presbyterian confessions and catechisms. Educated at some of the finest academic institutions in the land, aspiring Presbyterian pastors for good or for ill become men of ideas. Incidentally, I recently asked a friend how he liked his new associate pastor, and he replied, he's great, he's so intelligent. When he preaches to us, I can't understand a word that he's saying. Is this what the Christian faith is? Is it a set of ideas, a set of ideas that are inaccessible to those who do not have advanced academic degrees? Jesus first appeared on the scene in Galilee to announce the gospel of the kingdom of God. He was not talking and debating the latest ideas like those Stoic and Epicurean philosophers at the Areopagus about whom Paul 
tells us in Acts 17. Rather, he was announcing an event. Grammarians tell us that in the original, the word kingdom is a verbal noun. God reigns. God is a sovereign ruler of all things. God has always been this ruler. But now he is going to show how he is this ruler in a new way. He has anointed this Jesus, the Son of God, with power to reveal and exercise this reign. Jesus not only announces the reign of God, he is its agent and bearer. But let's be clear. When Jesus comes to announce and to enact this reign, he enters into enemy territory. To be sure, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all that dwell therein, as the psalmist declares in Psalm 24. But ever since sin and rebellion entered into this world, God's rightful ownership of the world that he has created has been contested. And that's why the event that Jesus announces manifests itself above all in a power struggle. Indeed, one student of the New Testament, Reinhard Feldmeier, goes so far as to say that one can see the whole New Testament as one long power struggle. There are devils and demons and those who do their bidding as well as sin, disease, and death on one side and mercy and goodness and the redeeming love of God in Christ on the other. Do we not see this power struggle play out in the synagogue at Capernaum? There Jesus and his disciples enter into the worship assembly and Jesus begins to teach. Now there in the synagogue was a man with an unclean spirit. The demon-possessed man presumably sat through Sabbaths of scribal teaching that left him unmoved. But as soon as he hears Jesus speaking authoritatively, the demon felt the heat of his presence and more the threat to the control that he held over this helpless man. What is there between us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We see here that the unclean spirit or the demon has a certain knowledge that it must express in words in the face of Jesus. Less obvious perhaps is a tactic that the demon employs in an attempt to gain control over Jesus. In the ancient world, it was assumed that one could neutralize the power of an opponent in a contest of this sort by showing to him his own image or an object belonging to him. In a similar vein, the demon attempts to point up to Jesus his true identity, but it proves futile, and it only serves to reveal that identity to those who are present at the synagogue. In contrast, Jesus does not use a formula or an incantation, which those standing there may have expected from an exorcist in Jesus' time. With a word, Jesus silenced the demon and cast him out. Scholars tell us that this Greek word used 
in our Bible, uh, which our Bibles, I should say, translates as rebuke, is a technical term that refers to a divine prohibition to which evil powers are compelled to submit. Jesus is saying, enough, no more, and the demon must submit. Mark uses this word because he wants us to see that in Jesus, the power of God is present in behalf of human beings against the forces that threaten them. Again, this is central to the gospel of the kingdom or reign of God. God is for life, which means that God is at the same time against the forces that damage and destroy life. The demon's convulsing of the man as it left him revealed its intent to damage and destroy life. The loud cry was both an acknowledgement of defeat and a protest that the regime of the demonic in this human life as a formidable challenger which is, who is bent on overthrowing it. In this confrontation, the demon is no match for Jesus. The dramatic episode broke like a thunderclap over the power of the devil. Make no mistake, there's more revealed here than a single exorcism. This is no less than an apocalyptic showdown between the Son of God and the cosmic forces of rebellion. I hope now that you're beginning to see the picture that is emerging. The gospel of the kingdom of God is good news because the bearer and agent of this kingdom, Jesus Christ, is the victor in this showdown. It is he who triumphs in this power struggle. He does good to those who suffer under this foreign power, this terrorist regime, saving, healing, raising up, and empowering. This is also portrayed for us in the next episode. We're still in Capernaum, and it is still the Sabbath, a day set apart by Jewish people to rest, to worship, and to renew family ties. And so Jesus and his followers do only what we should expect them to do. They visit the home of Simon, also known as Peter and his brother Andrew with James and John after the synagogue service, the very service in which Jesus casts out the demon. The scene ought to be familiar to us. Um, at my first church in rural Wisconsin, it was always a losing proposition to have the Sunday school hour after the worship service. The people always left worship to meet with their parents or in-laws for Sunday brunch, either at their local restaurant or at their homes. Uh, This was an established routine among the church folks there, and trying to change it proved futile. We finally had to hold the Sunday school hour before the worship service for the committed few who still came. The visit on this day, however, was not typical. Simon's mother-in-law, who lived with him and Andrew, and presumably with Simon's wife, is sick in bed with a fever, and they tell Jesus about her at once. Parenthetically, we should note that in the world of the New Testament, physical illness is no less a mark of the regime of the devil than the demonic 
the demonic possession. There's a deep continuity between the, the healing that will occur later in this episode and the preceding exorcism in the synagogue. Returning to the narrative, we may suppose that there's no reason in telling him that the disciples are expecting Jesus to do anything extraordinary. Their words probably at first signify no more that the one who you would expect to provide hospitality is incapacitated. Hospitality will not be provided because the member of the household who is responsible for it is in bed with a fever. But Jesus responds by entering into the room of the sick woman and heals her. And it's worth noting how Mark narrates this. The text reads, He took her by the hand and lifted her up. And these words are are pregnant with theological significance. The woman's experience appears to be like that of the psalmist. The Lord lifted him out of the pit, out of the mud and the mire, and set his feet upon a rock. The image in both cases is that of a strong hand reaching down to grasp the hand of one in need of rescue. Again, um, we have in our language the phrase to lend a helping hand. And I repeat that perhaps we find it easier to lend a helping hand than to receive one. To refuse one is a common reaction, as I've had occasion to scold the people at my church uh, before. We can be a stubborn and proud people, which is really nothing to, to boast about. But in relation to Jesus and his power, we are always on the receiving end. When he extends his helping hand to us, we have always to be ready and willing to reach out and take hold of his hand. For her part... Simon's mother-in-law did so, and she can now make the testimony of the psalmist her own. The Lord sustains them on the sickbed. He restores them from their bed of illness. Just as in the preceding episode, so also in this one, Jesus does good to those who suffer under this foreign power in occupied territory. Jesus proves himself more powerful than the power of death and destruction, just as Jesus commanded the demon to leave the man with his word. So also he commands the fever to leave the woman with a touch. Note here that his power extends not only to the spiritual realm but also to the physical. In the modern mind, the two tend to be distinct, but in the ancient mind, the two are integrated, as we've already mentioned. I think, however, this is changing, at least in some circles. Holistic medicine in recent decades has begun to recover the wisdom of a holistic approach to treating the human person. We are whole persons, body, mind, soul, and spirit. In some Holistic approaches offer promising new treatments. Let's note finally that in the phrase lifted her up, we may hear an echo of the resurrection. The power 
that Jesus extends to Peter's mother-in-law is resurrection power by which he raises her up. The author of the letter to the Ephesians prays that his readers will know how great is God's power towards those who belong to him. It is the same power that God exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principalities and powers, might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Again, we have this spectacular image of God's infinite power. This is the power that God has unleashed in this world in Jesus Christ, the agent and bearer of God's kingdom. Next we see that when Jesus lifts her up, she rises to serve others. At one level, she's providing the hospitality that her illness earlier prevented her from providing when the four men at first arrived. But again, there's more revealed here than a single healing. The word translated here to serve is used in Mark's gospel in the context of discipleship. At the end of Mark's gospel, the women who, in contrast to the male disciples, have stayed to the end, are described as those who followed him and served him. Mark 15, verse 40, 41. One commentator points out that this mention of the women's service makes Simon's mother-in-law a model for all disciples, especially women disciples, who are raised to new life for the kingdom and live out this new life by sharing in ministry. Let's be sure that we understand this because it applies just as much to us today as it did to them then. There is God's touch on our lives, and then there is our service. And it's important that we have this order right. What God does for us always proceeds, whatever it is that we do in service to God. The power that heals and forgives and restores always precedes our gratitude, which finds expression in our serving one another in love. Christ's power in us is the power to serve. Indeed, in this connection, we may even venture to say that in Christ's healing of Peter's mother-in-law, we have, in a nutshell, the scheme of the Heidelberg Catechism, which, of course, is central to so many uh, in this town, I should say, to their formation. Um, The Heidelberg Catechism organizes its content according to a threefold scheme. How many remember this? Misery, deliverance, and gratitude is one way. The one that I can remember most easily because somehow, you know, uh, because of, uh, what is it, alliteration, sin, salvation, and service. From deliverance flows gratitude. From salvation flows service. Returning to our lesson, we note that it is now evening. And because the Jewish people reckon a day from dusk to dusk and not from midnight to midnight, the Sabbath has ended. The new work week has begun. And apparently Jesus has his 
work cut out for him. Great crowds of people who heard about what he did in Capernaum show up there at the door of Simon's house and they come in search of healing of their own diseases, of deliverance of their own demons. And many were not disappointed. What Jesus did for the man with the unclean spirit and for Simon's mother-in-law, he did for many of them too. But may, may we say that the intensity of the spiritual combat in which Jesus has engaged has wearied him? To be sure, he bears the power of God as the Son of God. But at the same time, he is human, just like us. It is a mystery, but in light of this mystery, we can understand his retreat in early morning to pray to God. And I believe that he's praying to God for the renewal of his strength. We are reminded here of the well-known passage in Isaiah 40 that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And this is good news for us too, to us who have confidence in the campaign of Jesus to destroy the grip of the devil and to reclaim human lives for the kingdom of God. We do pledge ourselves in support of this campaign by leading lives of service, but in spite of the power that God gives us to serve, we too grow tired. But we can also have confidence that the time that Jesus spent with God in prayer to renew his strength is an example for us too. We too should on occasion retreat from our busy routines to a solitary place to seek the face of God, to spend time in prayer. We too should wait on him. And as we do, we will find our strength renewed. Spending time with God in prayer re-energizes us to continue in our service to him, which the example of Jesus shows us. Simon and the others go, go out to find him, to tell him that everyone is searching for him. And having been recharged, he responds that he's ready to move out and to continue to do what he's been doing in the other towns. And he repeats there what we've seen here. He preaches in the synagogues throughout Galilee and casts out demons. Dear friends, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we see divine power engaged in a contest against the forces of darkness, disease, destruction, and death. But these forces, in the end, cannot prevail. In Jesus, God expresses his victorious power in acts of deliverance and healing. And when we are the recipients of these acts, when God extends his hand to us too to raise us up, we respond in acts of service just as Simon's mother-in-law did. And God continues to make that power available to us that we may continue to serve him by serving others. For the power that heals is the same power 
that sustains and renews. Let's then always look to him and to his power. Amen. We now have a few moments to um, raise uh, questions, offer comments, uh, anything that you want to say in connection with the confessional lesson or with our reading from Mark's Gospel. Chris, can you clarify again why it was that Jesus rebuked the demons to be quiet and not make him known? We see that throughout the scripture, and I, I've heard it before, and I just I don't really remember exactly the reasons. We do see it in other places in the Gospels, but it does seem to be thematic in Mark's Gospel. And there are many scholars who um, hypothesize why that is the case. Why does that seem to be uh, a, an emphasis in Mark's Gospel? Um, now, one response is that Jesus does not want to be misunderstood. He wants his identity disclosed um, when the time is right, namely at his arrest, trial, and crucifixion, when he confesses who he is, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's those events that define his Messiahship. And so in these contexts, um, there's an occasion for misunderstanding of who he is. That's one, that's, that's one response. But it is, a, it is an interesting question, and I'm not sure that I can answer it adequately. Well, it kind of ties in with um, the book of Acts. Is it Peter? Anyway, that's Paul. When the, the, the demon-possessed girl says, these men have the words of eternal life, and it's, it's like, well, she's saying the right thing. And yet he rebukes them, rebukes her, and the demon comes out of her, and they, of course they lose their prophet. It's a, it's a mystery. I mean, saying an accurate thing, but I think it's as you say. It's, I don't know. Yeah, yeah one of the scholars um, who explored this, um, his name was William Rada, and he referred to it as a messianic secret. Um, and he had a different explanation. Um, he was a skeptic, and he said um, in the early Christian communities, they had to explain, if your Messiah is so great, then why, aren't, why haven't more people heard of him? And they said, well, he tried to keep, keep it quiet. Uh, I'm not really sure that that's... Uh... Anyone else? If not, then... Receive now uh, the Lord's parting benediction. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.